You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years are of this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Yoshua Pupko of Beth Israel Beth Aaron, Cote St. Luke, Montreal, Quebec, <laughs> Canada, North America. Um, yes, I think I've got all those things in. Um, and I actually mentioned Canada for a reason. And, you know, we're, here we are right before Lug Bomer counting the Omer. Uh, for us, you know, this count, have we changed? Have we developed if anything? Uh, where are we going? Um, especially this year versus last year, uh, we, you know, perhaps uh, we're counting towards a great, great Gilly of Shavuos, who knows. Um, I, I think there's another count that's also been going on concurrent to us. And that is this, I don't know, I think maybe it was FDR who started it back in 1932. I don't know, we, neither of us were alive then. But this idea of coming in and changing the world and changing America within the first hundred days. Maybe it wasn't FDR, perhaps it was another president, but I think we've been hearing about how the first hundred days of a presidency, the first hundred days, maybe even of any job that you're at, is going to be indicative of what you really are going to do. Um, You have to get a couple of days to get your feet wet, but by the time the three-month period arrives, and let's just round it off to a hundred already, you're expecting a vision and something that was clear. Again, I might be wrong with my uh, Roosevelt facts, but I, I do believe that within the first couple of months of the 1933 Roosevelt administration, there was the Tennessee Valley Authority. There was the other uh, public works. There was this idea of, of trying to change and, 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 and get America back working again. And at least we, that's the way it's been, been told. And now here we have our president, um, not yours, since you're Canadian, but you are an American citizen, and you take a very vested interest in what's going on, um, these 100 days. And I think that most people are probably pretty shocked how far the president is, what he's doing, what he's suggesting. He is really pushing, I think, the United States towards a much more a vision of the United States as much more of a socialist country. Now, again, I'm not talking about Bernie Sanders. I'm not talking about communism. I'm talking about incredible spending for social, uh, you know, crafting a new social order or uh, ripping out what he feels is the corrupt order, talking about things in, in, in a way that really put the government completely, you know, square and fronter in our daily lives. Now, uh, the reason I'm now I could get this schmooze from any right wing commentator. I can get this from anyone in the National Review or from anyone. I don't need Rabbi Pupko for this. But uh, what I do want Rabbi Pupko for is, first of all, you are not only knowledgeable about what Biden is doing, but you can also contrast that to the country that has adopted you and loves you so much, the, the Canada, which really is a, a country that is much more of a socialist country uh, than we had been. And I also know the other country that, that, that means so much in your heart is, of course, Israel. And you have been on this program and throughout your life an incredible defender of Israel's existence, critic you have been sometimes of its policy, but you have been very much supportive no matter who's in charge. And I want you to talk a little bit about Israel as well in terms of at least is that a socialist democracy that's working and 
this gives you a lot, I think, to talk about. America, Canada, and Israel. Rabbi Pupko, I have had my say. I think I'm just going to, you know, go to the bathroom for a couple of minutes and let you uh, let you talk. But no, no, I'm going <laughs> to listen. Go ahead. You know, it's, um, it's almost like the old DJs they used to put on American Pie. Right, right. <laughs> but, no, that's that's about a ten minute song. Yeah. By the right. time by the time you know uh, you know you get to the the father and the son and the Holy Ghost and you know they took the last thing through the coast. The guy had a chance to smoke a joint outside and, and come right. back. So I'm gonna I'm gonna smoke my joint, so so to speak, and let you talk. Go ahead. I, I still remember the uh, FM radio station across the street from Yeshiva in Florida. Um, anyway, the, yes. What was the, it? Do you remember? You don't even. You don't, I don't remember, remember the call. No, I don't remember. Yes. Anyway, the um, this this is a again, as you say, you don't need me. I mean, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal or the National Review can talk about you know what's going on in Biden and sometimes the the damaging effects of governmental, you know, uh, uh, entanglement, uh, excessive entanglement with the economy and the largesse of these trillions of dollars being spent, uh, money being allocated when the the money from the last bill hasn't even been spent yet. And, and what that does to the economy, you have this debate, whether it's inflationary or not, which will not be resolved in, a, in an actual debate, but be resolved by history very soon. And um, the perverse incentives that sometimes these programs trigger, where it's more profitable to stay home than go to work, because the unemployment benefits are, uh, are, 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 are are so generous. And I just saw an article that that is the case in Israel, where the restaurant owners are complaining that they can't get staff because the staff makes more money on unemployment than they do working. And you see that in the States as well. And um, you see it certainly in Canada. I know many people who are having trouble finding employees because of the the excessive involvement of government in, in the economy. Also, you have this phenomenon that we all know that those who are want the government to be most generous are sometimes the same people who are the least generous in their own lives. And the people who want government to be more restrained or more generous in their own lives. Every study in American charity, charity giving shows that conservatives give much more to charity the liberals, and then liberals always say, oh, they're giving to churches. If you take out all the money conservatives give to churches, they are still more generous than liberals. So we know that, that, that sometimes this socialist impulse is let somebody else be generous. Uh, now, let's talk about the economies. So, you know, Israel certainly was founded by socialists. There's no question. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, if you weren't a socialist, you were considered a barbarian. And just like people have to, uh, almost with Tourette's syndrome, keep aping the word systemic racism about America today, no matter how far removed it is from reality, uh, you know, we realize in the 1920s, unless you were a socialist, a Bundist, even a communist, you weren't considered part of a refined and enlightened society. That was the reality, certainly, in the Jewish world. 60% of Lenin's first cabinet were Jews, so the rabbis. And we all know. Yeah, let me just put a little historical context into that. Part yeah. of it, I think, had to do with the um, the incredible uh, ascension of these uh, industries uh, in a monopolistic sense, uh, and the way uh, that the aggressive nature of the industrial revolution had sort of uh, forced so many that had had agricultural jobs into right. these into these uh, terrible uh, types of uh, employment which really bred 
the socialist instinct because look what the workers look what they're doing look how the people who have the money are, right. are, are are pushing us around so there was you know the sweatshops that we hear about so that's part of the reason right why and in russia the same thing you had the peasants being exploited no, no question i mean and for jews there was the added impulse that they believed that communism would in fact cure the world of anti-semitism Right. They were they, look. The Jews in the United States who were finding these jobs were were being crushed under the hand of these fat cats. And as you say correctly as well, in Russia there was a dream that maybe finally, uh, with this philosophy, uh, which would uh, you know totally eliminate the the religious aspect. I mean, I, I'll tell you something funny. I'll tell you a story about people you know. You know Rabbi Mutti Yafin. Can you remember his late father? Of course. So I, I was talking to uh, Rabbi Mutti often about this in the 80s and the early 80s. And he told me about, you know, how his father, like all Jews of that generation, all voted for the Democratic Party. And Mutti at that point, like many of us, were neocons, were called neocons or whatever, right? Who believed in the Republican Party, Reagan, and everything else. And he was he told me about it. Uh, especially, especially as it because it would help his stock holdings. Well, I, you know, I, I would like to ascribe uh, loftier motives to people. Philip, you, <laughs> yeah, no, what I'm but, saying, M- Mutti, Mutti was a person who understood that Reagan was better for a thriving economy and for people to invest their money in, and they would they would earn money. I'm not trying to put Mutti down. I love Mutti, but okay. Mutti, I, I think you're inside. I'm going to send this tape to Mutti, and we'll let him decide. Yeah, okay, that's right. <laughs> we're going to maybe this will be standard fare from the Basios if you shoot <laughs> Anyway, so, so but anyway, so, but you're right. But part of it. So Buffy the, told me that my, you know, he he challenged his father about voting for the Democrats, and his father answered him in Yiddish. He says, "The that we have to be with the workers." That means even the Orthodox Jews, <laughs> whose roots were in Eastern Europe, you know, believed that the Jews were overwhelmingly part of the working class, and the working class were being were ostensibly having their interests embraced by socialists. And, and therefore, you had to be with the working group. But again, listen, look what happened to Alabama two weeks ago. They have a union vote, right? Oh, African-Americans and, you know, and, and people working for Amazon, which has become the, the boogeyman, right, of, 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 of aggressive uh, capitalism. They voted down the union. They voted down the union. I mean, people today understand that unions are, uh, are, can be as corrupt as, as, as corporate owners, and uh, if, if not more so. And they understand that their interests are not necessarily served by having a chunk of their paycheck going to a union that uh, to fight a, a, a company that they think is doing okay for them, you know. And no matter what you hear from Rachel Maddow about uh, about Amazon, and so well, and, you know, I think Jimmy Hoffa has, uh, you know, the, the Jimmy Hoffa right. teaches I mean, us. Jimmy, 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 Jimmy Hoffa teaches us about what you know the union uh, was about, right? It was really, uh, I mean, in many ways. Whatever good, and there was quite a bit of good, but there was also forty or fifty percent of it lined the pockets of of union guys. But also, right now in the U.S., outside of government employees, only six percent of the American workers are are, are unionized. Only six percent. And I would also make the other point that the fact that government workers are unionized and they vote as a block give enormous amount of money to political campaigns. Uh, and you saw this with the lockdown and teachers not wanting to wanting to work is that, you know, in, in the pension crisis in places like Illinois, New York and California, is that government workers eliciting commitments from the Democratic Party and then delivering money and votes to them is not necessarily the healthiest thing. Right. So uh, 
so the, the question, the world has changed dramatically uh, since the union movement and socialism. And, and, and the reality is that, you know, the Scandinavian countries, which some, you know, teary-eyed uh, left-wingers in America look to as some kind of inspiring model, look at their corporate tax rate, look at their rate of regulation. Those countries abandoned, look at the wealth taxes that they tried and then abandoned because it was so destructive. And those are the same kind of policies being pushed by the left wing of the of the Democratic Party today. And the question is that we're now in the midst of a of a wild economic experiment of a degree of governmental generosity that is unparalleled, right? Where program after program of trillions of dollars is announcing another one tonight, uh, whether it's uh, you know in the stimulus program and now this program and paying for early childcare, paying for community college, uh, pay, yeah, uh, keeping unemployment. Uh, uh, benefits so high, all this stuff. We'll see if it works. The fact is, nothing hurts the middle class more than inflation. And if this profligate spending triggers inflation, whatever, wh however well intentioned these programs may have been, nothing will rob a person of their money more than inflation. Which, and, 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 which and, is and, which is the complete diminution of the value. Well-meaning programs do create perverse incentives. And, and we talked about this before. And, you know, there's always unintended consequences of government intrusion into, in, into the economy. The fact is capitalism works quite nicely. It has raised the incomes and lifestyle of millions of people around the world. Cure disease. Really, I mean, look at, the, look at the rate of what's called extreme poverty, right, you know, in the world. It's dropped dramatically. I mean, the, the average, what you call poor today would have been called middle class 50 years ago in terms of the conveniences that they have in their lives and everything else. Now, and, all, and the idea that that government knows best, I mean, you know, I, I look at my where I live in, in, in Quebec, where, uh, you know, I think about 60% of the population doesn't have to pay taxes because of, of, of the tax system. And, and, and they receive more from government than they would have to give and the taxes are higher than they would be in the States. Um, you know, are people being well served? I mean, you have to wait six months to get, uh, you know, to, to, for, for, for medical procedures. Is that right? Good? So let, let, let people know this. I think people have to realize. I know my mother-in-law, of course, uh, my wife is a, is a Canadian. Uh, she never got U.S. citizenship. And, but, you know, she is a, uh, she has a uh, green card, as we say. Right. Um, but I remember, you know, the, the issues we had to go through for what procedures, medical procedures, the wait time. The wait time is unbelievable. People, yeah. you know, diagnosed with cancer, they can't see a specialist for six months. I mean, it doesn't work well. It doesn't. And also, let's remember, the majority of the healthcare budget in the province of Quebec does not go for healthcare. It goes to the bureaucracy running the healthcare, right? I mean, has anyone ever walked out of the Department of Motor Vehicles in Indiana impressed with the brilliance, efficiency, and work ethic of a government employee? Yet, no matter how many negative experiences people will have with government bureaucrats, they will continue to say, well, the government should do this, the government should do that. The government, the government doesn't do anything well, and they can't do it well. It would be perverse if they oh, did it well. So let's, let's talk about Israel, because, you know. But there, there are no incentives to do well. You can't get fired in these jobs. Right. You can't get promoted. You can't get you nothing, and nothing works. So in what world does a lack of, of incentives generate excellence 
so why in Eritrea, even though you say they are not the ribald socialists that they were, but there still is so much red tape and there's so many this this coupa and this misra yes, and yeah, right yeah. right it's it's it, you again <laughs> it's it's laughable. People sit on the in their cafes and make jokes about it. But yeah, it, yeah, the bureaucracy in, in Israel is astonishingly complex, and as much as they some politicians say they're going to try to change it. The fact is you have too many people employed by government. You have too many people who benefit from the incompetence of, of a bureaucracy. And, and again, it's a problem. There's no question. It was built in the, in the European model of, you know, a more socialist uh, culture. And, and the result is inefficiency. And the result is, you know, it, 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 this stuff doesn't work. There's no model of success. I mean, what, so what, what country can, can you can you can, can you see a possibility of change? You know, part of being entrenched in our ideals, whether it's well, it's in the Bill of Rights. Oh, we've been doing that that this way for years. This is the Minag Israel. You know, the longer the system in Israel is this sort of shuffling along with band-aids and spit, the longer people will say, we've got to keep on doing it this way. We've always done it this way. Right. Maybe, maybe there could be a vote, a referendum to, to change Israel into much, to a, much more like the democracy that the U.S. was. Can they do I, that? Listen, I mean... And, and, and dismantle you know, all those tentacles that the government is, puts into, their, into people's listen, lives. Listen, part of the problem is you have a political system which is almost designed for paralysis a uh, political system where parties that get 5% of the vote, which would be called a fringe party anywhere else in the world, hold the balance of power. And in, in, you know, in the negotiations to form a coalition, everybody needs their cabinet post to their department, to their ability to hand out patronage jobs and positions. And you end up with a, uh, you know, with a, uh, a you know, a, 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 I hate to use the word, but it's a corrupt system, a corrupt system of, you know, people benefiting from the public trust you know, in you know, imagining no one really has to pay for it, but everybody pays for it in the end, and uh, it creates inefficiencies, and uh, and also it's debilitating for the citizens. Debilitating. One thing that works well though in Israel, in contrast to Canada, is, is the healthcare system. The healthcare system in Israel it, it works pretty well. They have these, uh, I think, three competing health, you know, like in HMO that uh, that every 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 single Israeli has to be has registered, part of one, but they do have to compete. They have to compete for, for patients. So that's a good thing. I mean, there's three competing. And uh, and they have to therefore prove their mettle and they have to do well. And without incentives, human beings don't really, aren't incentivized without incentives. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I'm sort of like old fashioned this way, you know, when I travel to Eritrea, um, although I have to, I think I have gone with United in the past. Um, now, to me, there's something just great about El Al. Do you do you, do you think that 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 you know it's time for? I think El Al is still part and parcel of the government. Am I wrong about that? Or no, they, they just sold private? it to an American businessman. Uh huh. So El Al is so which and El Al was sort of like the you know the symbol of of I, maybe it didn't work well, but they sure clamped down on terrorism and they were the number one. Right, right. You, when you, security right. was an issue, you only wanted to fly a lot. Right. And you got so that I, I'm just holding up as an example. Maybe I'm totally off base of a governmentally run program that was working. The the for a while, right? El Al did it, you yeah. know. And part of it was because you knew there was government money and brains and uh, involved in stopping any sort of uh, uh, you know 
suspicious people. And um, it, I don't know if El Al could have Listen, been The problem with El Al is that it's Jewish. You know, the, I mean, the, the classic joke about El Al is that when the plane was landing a week before Passover and Easter in Israel, the pilot gets on the mic and goes, to all of our non-Jewish passengers, we wish you a happy Easter. To all of our Jewish passengers, please sit down. In other, in other words, Jews don't behave well when it's other Jews giving you the instructions. And Jews behave much better on uh, Air Canada or certainly Lufthansa than they do on El Al. They're just not, you know, Jews treat each other with... Well, you never know with Lufthansa. You never know when the, the plane might just decide, we're going to Berlin! Jews just don't behave well, you know. Yeah, that's right. We hear those German voices. Just something. Yeah, we, we tend to be more disciplined. Yes, but the yes. Um, but the, uh, the contempt of familiarity takes over. And it, uh, uh, yeah, yes, but on the other hand, um, you know, I really felt you know when when that secure. Like I, I, I'll I, tell you a funny story. Okay. When Air Canada some years ago, maybe twenty years ago, started flying to Israel, they flew me about twelve times from Montreal to Toronto to do cultural training for their staff. Which I just thought was fun, you know. I didn't, didn't pay me, but I got, I, I got aeroplane points, so I did. Uh, anyway, so they would fly me in for an afternoon, fly me out, you know, it was no big deal. And I would talk to, you know, the pilots, the uh, uh, the flight attendants about, you know, about you know what to expect from the flights to Israel, what to expect in Israel. And I basically would do like a you know forty five minute comedy routine, and um, sort of like what and, we do here. Yeah. So, uh, so the <laughs> right, so the one of the and, and all nearly all of them had ex, had much experience with Jews, of course, because they were had been flight attendants or whatever on planes going from Toronto to Miami or Fort Lauderdale, so they had experience. So I got a lot of funny questions like, "Why do this is twenty years ago? Obviously, the question would be different today. Why do all Jewish women drink Diet Coke?" I remember one of the questions. <laughs> and and another question is, "What is it that those Orthodox Jews have in their hats in their boxes? What are all these boxes they're always drinking?" They were fascinated by this. One of the funniest things was a flight attendant asked me, maybe she had already been to on one of the Israel 15 flights, why do Jews have to pray when we want to serve breakfast? Right? In other words, when they ought to block the aisle. So I told her that we Jews have a tradition that the more people you annoy by praying, the more likely God is to listen to your prayer. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's a one a wonderful justification for what i think both of us think is ridiculous oh, completely ridiculous. i think but this is this is one of the areas where we needed you know a rabbinic voice way I mean, there are right? I, I have to give right i know but but they didn't get involved they should have they should have stamped it out right away we should have heard from Shlomo Zalman and the other post oh, right away but i, I gotta do tell not you do this do the not... most insane version was when you would get on a plane two hours after skia and a guy would say, let's make a minion for Myers. You were on the ground. You could have davened before you got on the plane, right? Like the plane's landing 5 a.m. in JFK, 5.30. Say, let's make a minion for Sasha. Yeah. No, you're going to land with ample time for Zaman Kriyashma in New York. Davin in a minion in New York. But the almost lahachis, right, to go ahead and make a minion on a plane. And the idea that somehow, I, I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, some good dialogue did come out and say it's better to sit in your chair and just dive in like a med. And this idea, I mean, I remember the old days when, you know, when there was smoking on the plane. You remember this, and the minion would always be in the smoking section. Yes. Right? And you go back, you make a minion in the galley there, and you come back reeking of Marlboro cigarettes. 
I mean, it was disgusting. Well, the other option was they always somehow the minion was by the John. The minion right, was, it was by always the, by the bathroom. Also. The bathroom, right? right? Yeah. yeah. So you know you have the door opening and people saying, right? It's right. Know, totally non. It's, it's totally it's non-alochic, and 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 it, it really generated a, a tremendous amount of chivul Oh yeah, and, I remember. I mean, you know, I this it, and again, it's usually avoidable. Uh, or often avoidable. Sometimes it's unavoidable. When it's unavoidable, you dive into your chair like a human being. Okay, and- so, so, but but I think my point about it, and we could probably do plain stories right. for, for, for for three hours. We could we talk need about a part session. On that. Yes, yes. We could, you know, you know, uh, you know, We could talk about my favorite Seinfeld episode, which is where I think Elaine gets put in the, the economy. In the, yes, the economy, and Jerry's <laughs> in the front. That is such a great uh, yes. difference between the way people are treated. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, Julie Ruiz Dreyfus said that. Let's make they, her an, they, they let's make like, her an honorary Jew. I think you know she right in terms yeah. of the way she was able to handle the misfortune. But you know, <laughs> but but okay. Planes aside, um, I, I think we're both on the same page here. That what's happening in the United States is 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 is, is a is, is a trend which is clearly negative, and the the samples of out in the world although you know again it's it's you know the scandinavian economies are so different than the the lifestyle is so different it's it's hard to even compare but canada and, and israel don't actually show us great models uh, for where we're going here no. um and 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 i guess you know i guess the other thing you know that i think roosevelt taught you know again we could blame this on roosevelt but roosevelt said you know, it's necessary to for our crisis, and I, I think you agree with me. As terrible as Corona was, it, 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 it's not necessarily on the same level of crisis as no. the complete global. Um, uh, and let's remember something: the way before Biden took office, months before, and the economy had already turned around. Once there was a, it was a government-imposed lockdown. That shut down the economy. As soon as you opened the door, it, there was economic growth, pent up demand. Americans have more money in their pockets than they've had, in, you know, ever almost. And there's people are, are are chomping at the bit to spend money. And was this all this governmental aid necessary? Was this emergency? You know, I, I, I mean, the, remember, this is not it's not just Biden. Trump had passed the stimulus uh, before that. Uh, and, and and the economy was doing fine. And I know that politicians get undeserved blame and undeserved credit for things that happen while they're in office. And Biden will probably get credit for an economic boom that uh, he had nothing to do with. It has to do with just the natural cycles of reopening and, 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 and other things that had happened before he took office. And, and now they're just pouring more and more money out. They, 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 they are not acting in a bipartisan way. They are... Although he ran as a moderate, distancing himself from the, uh, the, the the more extreme elements of his own party, he's certainly governing closer to them than one would have anticipated. Right, and, and, and many of these, although some of his proposals do need House and Senate approval, the spending bills do not, and therefore it depends uh, how they pass them. If they do it a budget reconciliation instead of the normal state way, yes, I think there is some sort of bird rule or something. There yeah, is yeah, some there's sort a budget of, reconciliation. There, there is a way that that, that yes. these, and, and that'll then really, you know, affect our grandchildren more than it will. But again, us. the more extreme parts of the left wing agenda won't pass. 
Washington, D.C. will not be a 51st straight. There will not be more than nine ju judges on the Supreme Court. They can't get that through the Senate. That'll never happen, I don't think. But um, but the economic stuff, they can get through, yes. Yeah, and I guess really, this really, you know, speaking about it in a religious way, when we talk about, you know, the Malchus, we talk about what is it that we envision in the future. You know, obviously, with God running the show through a his appointed Messiah, um, you know, it's, uh, this discussion is completely moot. But let's talk about before Yemes Mashiach, you know, when we talk about um, the type of, 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 of place that, uh, that has the most potential of a Yashras government. Um, can you sketch that out just for the last couple of minutes here? What do you think? What do you mean? In, in a, in a, you mean in, in a modern Jewish state today, you mean? Right, right. yes. We, we've talked about the corruption and the, and, and, and the negative things that happen in Israel. We've talked about the problems in Canada. We talked about here. But let's now, again, we can all say, let's just the Mashiach come and, and everything will go according to the Torah and, and we'll just take our orders from Leish and Aaron. Can you, can, can you at least give an idea of how you, you know, what, what you see? It? I mean, is, is, is it 1776 is it, or whatever came out at, at the Constitutional Convention? Do you think that is the, the best way to govern? What do you think? I don't believe that political freedom freedom and economic freedom are divisible. I think you want to live in a free society. And I think the free other society is with the necessary guardrails, but with the, you know, uh, the free society is the better it is. Listen, the biblical model, the Jewish model of, of an economy is very interesting. It's uh, unbridled free enterprise. And then after 50 years, someone blows a whistle and you start, you go back to go and everyone gets their land back. I mean, that was a highly agrarian society, obviously. But, you know, a model like that where no one has to go to sleep at night thinking because I was a failure, my grandchildren are doomed to poverty, right? Where, where, where there's always hope because you're close to the to Yovel. Uh, but there's also uh, mandated by law uh, uh, that the uh, that the poor are taken care of, that there's the Lekachik, Peya, and Maishorani, and everything else. And that... Uh, you know, listen, Donna Kennedy said it best in his inaugural address is we want a society where the stronger, just, and the weak secure. And again, those words aren't very palatable to today's ears, but that's basically what it is. Where people who have are, are, are motivated by justice and those who don't have can feel secure. And that's all you want, you want in a society. And we know it's better if it's done by civilians on their own rather than by government mandate, but even in the Torah system. It's done by halachic mandate, where the poor have to be taken care of. And, uh, and the question is, how do we, how do we help people without, without creating permanent dependence? How to help people to be independent? And how to speak openly about which behaviors are more likely to create uh, prosperity and an opportunity for creativity? And we all know what those choices are. You, you, you know, you go to school. You, know, you 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 actually study for your exams. Uh, you don't get drunk on the weekends or high in the evening, and you work hard. And generally speaking, you know, ninety nine times out of hundred in America, if you are diligent and work hard and have good habits of delayed gratification and discipline, you will succeed in America. So, so you know what? I, so you're getting me thinking here as sort of like a a, a compromise. Perhaps this that's on the agenda to uh, to make 
uh, college more affordable might actually knock out everything else. But if we educate people and we give them the tools to now go into this uh, capitalist economy, that might be great because, right? So in other words, would you agree that maybe a free education, including college, might actually generate a great benefit because that will that will bring so many more people into the workforce. Right. Here's what I would say about that. There's two things. Parenthetically, the two parts of the American economy that are most inflationary is healthcare and university education. And the reason they have the highest prices compared to what they were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago is because they enjoy governmental support, right? Because you get Pell Grants and you get Medicare. Anytime the government supports something, the institution knows that they can raise prices because the government will take care of it. That's the problem there. But, but I, it's not just an education force kind of education. Places like Germany are, are much better, have, are, have created educational paths that are much more realistic for its young people. Not everybody needs a four-year university education, right? There are uh, you know, some of the most lucrative positions that you can get as a young person are people who learn a trade, who learn how to lay oil pipelines or unclog toilets or do electrical work. These are wonderful jobs, wonderful jobs. They are the closest we have to the old GM model in Detroit, which created the entire middle class. These are wonderful jobs, and they have enormous number of vacancies. So if you go to school for four years and learn, you know, uh, and study English literature, hey, you're not necessarily that employable, except as an English literature teacher or philosophy. But if you go to school that's more focused on producer, as they used to say, on making a living, you know, that, you know, that certainly helps in this idea of community college. Right, but, 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 but the way that worked, the way that, I'm sorry for interrupting, Rabbi, but the way that worked is in the high schools, which the government right. had uh, oversight, they would issue these tests. And the, the, like, and the tests, especially in England and other places, right, exactly. would indicate where you were more mukhshar. And that, was, that is something which I think is an anathema to the to the to the woke culture, the idea that we, we're going to give you a test, and that test is going to determine which type of university you are eligible to go to. But okay. your the, the testing in your high school years will be the indicator: Are you someone that could actually go into anything higher than uh, being a tradesman? And I think right. that, that that is, but, but that's the way those that's the way that's the reason why it worked, because uh, the government was willing to insert itself and say, hmm. This might be our next plumbers. You're going to make a great bricklayer. You're going to maybe make uh, someone that should be in chemistry and science and other things like that and could help, you know, create the next. I mean, the benefits of that are extraordinary. People want to work. People want to be productive. People want to go home at night feeling they've done something creative and real. And whether that's creative and real because you traded stock or creative and real because you built, participated in the building of a home. That's a sense of accomplishment in life. It provides dignity to life, not just an income. And paying people not to work, which is what's happening now, it debilitates, it's soul-crushing. It destroys you know, the, the fa- basic fabric of society. People need to work. The fact is, you know, it takes a lot less employees to do things. Everyone said, oh, we lost jobs because China took over manufacturing. We lost jobs in America because of illegal immigration. None of that's true. You look if you look at the crunch the real numbers and look at the real economic situation in America, right? Americans have lost jobs because of automation. It takes a lot less people 
to do today what it took it took 50 or 40 years ago. A lot less people, whether you're working on a farm or you're working in a factory, you just don't need that many people. But there are a lot of jobs that are go wanting today because people are, don't have the training for it or the culture doesn't prize that title enough for people to be to aspire to it. I don't know. But, you know, so, it, 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 it may take, you know, higher wages for those jobs. But the fact is, those are the jobs where we need people. Uh, you know, you talk, I mean, you, you know, you do look at the surveys of employers across the country. You know, many, many sectors of the economy are desperate for people to work and don't have the, 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 the trained people. And, uh, you know, and, and if, as you say, if government involved itself at a high school level, starting in the, the second or third year of high school and, and being able to gently nudge right, people to the right career paths and the right, and therefore the right education and training, yeah. those wonders for them yeah. and for society. Yeah, of course, if, you know, if that would have been uh, the modus operandi in Arius Stroll, neither of us would be doing what we're doing now because so we, we would, would both be we, working we, for the co- We would both be working. We would be working. We would be like Art Carney in the sewer, basically. No, we would be in the yeah, I, I would be um, working in the sewer and you'd be driving Ralph Cramden's bus, I think. <laughs> that's basically what it was. And, you know, I mean, that's you what know, I think I would. I think I would have been a bartender, actually. Uh-huh. Okay, um, you know, let, let's just also say that in 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 the yeshiva, just to make a a, a serious statement about the yeshiva world, um, they didn't do that. They don't do that enough. Um, the yeshiva world holds up this uh, ideal of a, of being the gadol, of being the great Talmud Chacham, right, right. being the rich gadol, where really the 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 advisors and smart people and and friendly people should be gearing the students towards a life of Parnosa, which isn't an assault on them uh, philosophically. Uh, a vocational schools um, uh, would be the would, uh, would be the greatest thing. A vocational school, and that and the Chassidish Hever are clamoring for it now. By the way, you have to give the Chassidish communities a lot of credit because they produce a heck of a lot of Orthodox blue collar work. One hundred percent, and there's no shame in it. There's no, there's no diminution in how they're treated in the right. community. And, and they, the only place where you find, and these guys are making a nice living, they're productive, they have, they, 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 they're, they're involved in worthwhile endeavors. So you have, yeah, you've got guys going into business and running nursing homes, but you have a lot of people who are, you know, in light manufacturing or, or in tech. I agree. I agree. And, and, electricians. and because and, part of it is because they are, they are part of a group rabbi that every evening when they come home and especially on shabbos they feel on an equal par with everyone there's no sense of you are less than a person and part of it is having a a charismatic leader but also the fact that there is a there's there's a strength and uniformity and love which we don't have in the standard world and that the senior communities have done it they deserve an enormous amount of credit for it because it, religion there plays the role it used to play for everyone. For in other words, no matter what you did during the week, you went to your lahav, you went to your church on Sunday. You were a person of dignity. You were part of a faith community. All of those safety nets of dignity, right, have been ripped apart, ripped to shreds. And the only thing people have is their jobs, and they have no sense of belonging unless they're sitting on the internet and hooking up with QAnon or whoever. And the sense of belonging, the sense of community which liberals scoffed at and thereby destroyed, those were the things that gave life meaning and balance to life. 
Yes, and I, we, as, as. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.